Amen. We fall down, we lay our crowns to the feet of Jesus, the greatness of his mercy and love at the feet of Jesus, and we cry, holy, 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 the kind of holiness that human beings cannot approach because he's so, so supremely pure, and yet he came among us to rescue us, to rescue us from danger, to rescue us from the fire, to rescue us from the wrath to come. And we sang earlier in the service, In Christ Alone, and the beautiful words of that song, and why do we praise Christ and Christ alone? Because by his death on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God against us. He's holy. Do you know that one of the denominations, one of the large denominations of America today, made a decision to take the words of Christ alone, the hymn Christ alone, out of its hymnals because of the phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied on the death of Christ. We live in days when we don't like to hear about what Christ has done for us. And that is only as we praise the gospel, as we praise his work on the cross, have we have any hope that God would rescue us. This morning, dear friends, as we continue our study through the book of Daniel, would you open your Bibles to chapter 3, and let's prepare our hearts to reflect on the God who rescues from fire. The God who rescues from fire. Daniel chapter 3, and we'll go straight to the passage of, this, of, of Scripture. In the Bibles in front of you, if you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 771. 771, Daniel chapter 3. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 90 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other official officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all the kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews 
whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now then, you hear the sound, now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards him changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times, hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel to and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any language 
or nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be torn into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to give us wisdom that we might understand the meaning of this story, the meaning of these events. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our God, we thank you that you are a God who saves like no other. Would you reveal yourself once again in fresh ways to us, your people gathered in this place, And, oh, Lord, if there's anyone here who is not yet convinced, who has not yet experienced the power of your rescue, the power of your salvation, we pray that today would be a day when you would reveal yourself in fresh ways, in new ways. We pray this for your glory and through the power of Christ. Amen. Ah, Daniel chapter 3. We love this story, don't we? We know what's about, right, children? Children, you know what the story is about. What happens to Daniel and his three friends? Actually, only to Daniel's three friends. God rescues them from fire. God is able to rescue his servants from fire. That's the point. That's it. We can go home. can finish the service early. You get the point? God is able to rescue his servants, even from fire. What's the point of this story? What should we take away from it? Most of us are not faced with such drastic choices of being forced um, either to worship false gods or to face death by burning. Such circumstances are unlikely for us here in the West, at least for now. But all of us are being tempted to worship false gods. This has not changed and will not change until the day we go to be with the Lord. Also, may, we may encounter some pressure, perhaps not life threats to worship these gods, but all of us do encounter and will encounter pressures to worship false gods. Even in freedom, we do encounter pressures to worship false gods. You may be asked to worship the god of this world by being pressured to speak untruth about a project at work. Or you might be pressured to act sinfully so you could get out of a difficult life circumstance. Or you might be pressured to to act sinfully so that you might get life back on track where you would really like it to be. So you're pressured to just do one thing once. Or... You may be 
tempted and pressured to do things that are against God's word. Just once. Bend the knee. Act unrighteously just once to get out of this mess. Serve the gods of this world just one time. Then you can repent and get back to God and get back to church. Have you been there? Have you felt those pressures? Have you felt those temptations? Daniel chapter 3 is a story of how God's people do face the pressures to worship other gods, whether or not their circumstances are life-threatening. How can they respond? How can we respond to such pressures in a way that honors God? How can they, how can we maintain the exclusive worship of God? Well, let's look at Daniel chapter 3. We'll look at three quick points. Convictions about God, the deliverance of God, and the exclusive worship of God. Convictions about God, the deliverance of God, and the exclusive worship of God. Convictions about God. The true convictions about God that these Hebrew men had really became evident in the heat of their circumstances. Now, friends, their heat was real. It's only, this is the amazing part, it's only then that you really get to see what you really believe about God. Why? Why is it that trials, that difficulties have a way to really bring out in us what is deeply seated in our hearts about God? It was as they were looking at the and the pressure of a fiery furnace that their true convictions about God really came out. Now notice the circumstances they were in. A gold statue, 90 feet high. <laughs> Pretty impressive. Made of gold, or at least placated with gold. In the first 18 verses, whenever the statue is mentioned, there is a phrase that describes the statue. It's, it was set up by the king or made by the king. Ten times in 18 verses, this statue is described as set up or made by the king. Why is this such a big deal about the statue? Well, just in case we forget or just in case we miss the obvious, Daniel wants to point out that what these men, actually the entire crowd, was asked to worship, was asked to worship something made by human hands. The worship was something made by human hands. That was the pressure. Now, where did this pressure come from? How did they experience this pressure? From at least three or possibly four sources. First of all, from the authority of the king. The king made a law, made a command. The king had power to tell his subjects what to do. Verse 5, the king says, you said, you must fall down and worship the image of gold. But the second source of the pressure came from intimidation. This command was simply not, a com not just a command, but was followed by an intimidating threat. And the threat was, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. This was a pretty clear situation, a forced worship. But there's a third and possibly a fourth source of the pressure, conformity. Look at verse 7. We read, 
Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music. Now, just pause there. When we read the chapter, did you notice how many times that whole string of, 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 of accompaniment was mentioned? Why? Here's my guess. It's just a guess. To show us that this worship was preceded by entertainment. Get people to enjoy the music, and they'll be more ready to do whatever they want, whatever you want them to do. Get this worship mixed with entertainment. And then look at the conformity. Then when all of this happened, when all of these instruments really got on and, and showed the, the fanfare, the, the big celebration, look at what happened. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down. Not at the feet of Jesus, as we have sung. They fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Do you see the picture? Entertainment. Everybody did it. There's not one person who did not do it. We'll see an exception later. Everybody did it. The king commanded it. And there was a threat. If you, what happens if you don't? Pressures from all parts, from all corners, to make people do one thing, to worship and serve this man-made image. Now, notice the apparent innocence of this worship. This is amazing. The king did not ask the crowd to give up their gods. The king did not ask the crowd to convert to Babylonian religion. No, the Babylonian king allowed each of these nations to continue the worship of their gods. They were free to worship the systems that they had before the king conquered them. The king only wanted one day, one time, one act of submission. And then they could have gone back to their, their places. They could have worshipped their own gods as long as they wanted in the way they wanted it. One day, in one day, in that one act, all those nations proved who they really worshipped. It was not their own gods. It was not even the, God, the statue that king, the king of Babylon had set up. Because you can't force someone to worship another god. That day, in that one act, all those nations proved that their true worship was the worship of themselves. You know why? Because they ultimately what they wanted to do was to protect their lives. They were willing to bow to another God who was set up by a human king as long as they could protect their lives. That's the God they worship. That's their ultimate God which they worship. Even though if you had asked them on that day, they would have denied. They would have said, no, we have our own gods. We have our own system of gods we worship. We have our own rituals. But on that day, through that one act, one instance, their ultimate God was their own selves. However, in that big crowd, there were three Hebrew officials who refused to worship the statue. And by their refusal, they proved who they truly, who they, who they truly and really worshipped. It was not even their gods. It was definitely not the gods of Babylon, not even their own lives. 
He was the God of heaven. Notice that this test of bending the knee, of worshiping the image, is followed not just by a threatening attack uh, of being thrown into the fire, but this is followed by an attack on God himself. Look at verse 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar says, Then who or what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What a great question. By that question, Nebuchadnezzar betrays his view of himself in comparison to the other gods. He shows his own impression of his invincible control. Friends, there is in man an inclination to believe that we are in ultimate control. Somehow, somehow we develop that in us, that nothing can stand against us. And this is the folly of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, and this is the folly of human pride also. Nebuchadnezzar had the pre-low view of Israel's God and a pre-high view of his own abilities on that day. In this assault of God, we see how the Hebrew men, how they hold on to the supremacy of God. They portray by their answer to the king what they really believed about God. Three convictions about God that these three Hebrew men had. Conviction number one is they had a high view of God's ability. They had a high view of God's ability. Can God deliver his servants who refuse to worship other gods? Verse 16, look at what verse 16 says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Friends, we don't know how these Hebrew men develop this conviction about God. We don't. There's a few possibilities. Did these men know about Psalm 91? Possible. For sure these men knew about their history when God had saved his people by carrying them through the waters of the Red Sea and by carrying them through the waters of Jordan as they crossed into the promised land. But at no time in the past do we, do we, did they see God actually carry someone through fire? Did these men read of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 43, when God said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Did these Hebrew men know these promises? Perhaps we just don't know how they knew that God was able physically to carry them through the fire. But that's what they believed. Isaiah said it. They believed it, that God can do what seems impossible to human eyes. These men had a high view of the supremacy of God, of the ability of God. But a second conviction they had was about God's freedom. Notice what they say in verse 18. But even if he does not, pause. But even if he does not, this is a huge, this is a crucial claim. It shows that their conviction in God is not only about God's ability to do it, they also have a conviction about God's freedom to do whatever he chooses, not whatever they would like. 
God is still God even if he chooses not to deliver. That's their message. While these Hebrew men are convinced of God's ability, they don't know God's purpose in that circumstance. They hope God would deliver, but they don't know it. This phrase, but even if he does not, friends, this phrase teaches us a great deal about faith. Our faith in God should not be faith in a desired outcome. We so often confuse faith in God with faith in a desired outcome. And when things don't go the way we want to, the logical conclusion is God must not be there. One of the big things by this very simple phrase, but if not, one of the big things this phrase teaches us is that faith in God is not the same thing as faith in the circumstances and outcomes we want God to do. Now, this is the hardest part of their conviction. They will not worship the image even if God doesn't deliver. They will not worship the image even if God doesn't deliver. Why? Because of their third conviction about God. So the first conviction is about God's ability, a supreme view of God, a view of God's supremacy, of his ability, then about God's freedom to do whatever he wants, but then thirdly, conviction about God's commands. His commands are true. His word is true. Their motivation for worshiping God exclusively was not because God promised to protect their lives. Their motivation for worshiping God exclusively was because of the Ten Commandments. You remember how they start? Let me read the first three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, punishing the children for their sins of the, thir of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. This is how the Ten Commandments start. Daniel chapter 3 tells us the primary question is not, if God is able to deliver us from fire, why would we consider worshiping other gods? That's not the question. The primary question is, is God worthy of our exclusive worship even if he doesn't deliver? That's the question. Is God worthy of our exclusive worship even if he doesn't deliver? And if so, why? And the answer is, because God commands it. Because God says it. And his commands are true, regardless of their circumstances. His commands are true, regardless of the outcomes. His commands are true, regardless of the threats. These were the very commands that Israel had broken in chapter 32 of Exodus, if you remember. And these were the commands that Israel has broken throughout the Old Testament time and again. That's why they were in exile, because they have forsaken God, because they have worshipped other gods. 
But now in exile, these three men refuse to continue the sinful pattern of their fathers. They break the spell, if you will. They break this, this pattern of being caught into sin's trappings of forsaking the commands of God. Their faith in God was to believe that God's commands are true regardless of the circumstances or the outcomes. I love how Dale Davis summarizes the faith of these Hebrew men. These men, he says, give us a full balanced picture of faith. Faith knows the power of God. He's able. Faith guards the freedom of God, but if not. And faith holds the truth of God. We will not serve your gods. This kind of faith, David says, does not predict God's ways. It simply holds to God's word. In this case, to his commands. This kind of faith obeys God's truth. It does not try to manipulate God's hands. Friends, I wonder if we would consider worshiping God and him alone, even if he would not provide for us his deliverances. What if he didn't follow through on the promises of Psalm 91? I know we love that psalm. It's a great psalm to, to claim. It's a great psalm to pray. But what if he doesn't deliver on Psalm 91? Is God still God? Is God still acting in his miraculous ways, in ways that we don't understand? Yes. Friends, is your faith centered on God and His Word or on a desired outcome you want God to work out? I know some of you go through various trials and you want to hold on to God and hold on to God and we want to encourage you to hold on to God. But hold on to God above everything else even above holding on to the outcomes of what you want God to work. Does that make sense? Do you see how that's different? That kind of conviction of God is different than the kind of convictions that try to manipulate God to do certain things, that try to condition God to do certain things so that our worship of Him will happen if God will do these things. Are your convictions about God biblical, of His power, of his freedom, of the truthfulness of his commands. Second thing we see, the deliverance of God. In some ways, this point is so self-explanatory. We know God delivered. We know how the story ends. God delivers his servants from fire. But there are two details I would like to point out in this deliverance. There's a surprising reversal of destinies. Those who are supposed to live, the strong soldiers, end up dying. They are the ones burned by the fire. And those who are supposed to be killed, to be burned by the fire, end up not even being touched by the fire. The text highlights that not even their hairs, not even their hairs were touched by the fire. Actually, the only thing that the fire did to them was to burn the rose by which they were tied. Now, I don't know, I don't understand the logic of the king to tie up these men right before throwing them into the furnace. Um... They're going to die anyway, tied or unbound or unbound. And yet he bound, binds them so, to show us that the only thing the fire was able to burn was the ropes, to get them loose. 
And then there's something else about this deliverance that's amazing. It says that not even smoke penetrated into their clothes. Friends, when you do a barbecue out in your backyard, your clothes will have the smoke, the smell of, of, of smoke even the next day. When you just do barbecue. And we're told that not even smoke could be felt on their clothes. That's the kind of way God delivered his servants to prove this king what kind of God he is. Why did God deliver in this powerful way? Why these details? It wasn't really just to deliver his servants, although God can deliver his servants. The, way, the reason why he did it in so, such a miraculous way is to prove the king his majesty. It's to respond to the king, to the king's question, what God will be able to rescue out of my hands? And the answer is, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of Israel, not any God, not just a God out there in, in the sky, out there in the heavens, the God of Israel, the God whom Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego served. Oh, friends, this God delivers in this way, not simply to draw attention to his servants. This God delivers in this way to draw attention to his big name. Israel's exile put a stain on the name of God because it gave the impression that this God is unable to save. And now God rescues not only his servants, God rescues his reputation among the nations. Imagine all the nations were there, just like in the book of Revelation. People of every language, people of every tribe. And here is God giving us a preview of Revelation. He is going to make a big name for himself. This is not about the servants. This is about God rescuing the reputation of his name to show why this God is worthy of worship, worthy of exclusive worship. And the third praise, the third conviction about this God is the exclusive worship of God. Chapter 3 ends with a praise given to God by King Nebuchadnezzar. Inside of all the nations, inside of all the peoples gathered there. Look at verse 28. He praises not just any God, but the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This God sent his angel, rescued his servants. There's a big discussion if, this, if the person in the first furnace was Jesus himself or an angel. There's lots of debate about that. We're not going to figure it out. And that's not the point. The point is not who was in the, serve, in the furnace. The point is God sent his angel. God sent someone to rescue his servants. But then look at how the king praises his God. The servants of his God trusted him, defied the king's commands, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their God. What is the king praising God about here? The king is praising God for his ability to communicate to his servants that he is worth the exclusive worship. And he praises God that his servants worship God exclusively at the cost of their lives. This is what God wanted, wanted to make known to the king, that those who worship this God, this kind of God, the God of Israel, is a God who has to be worshipped exclusively. 
because he's the only true God, because there is no other God besides him. The right worship of God is an exclusive worship. That's why we Christians remind ourselves daily of the dangers of falling into the worship of false gods, the danger of falling into idolatry, the, worship, the danger of falling into adoring and worshiping things made by human hands. That's why part of living as a people of God, as the body of Christ, as people bound together by the love of Christ, part of living together in this way is we keep one another accountable. We watch over one another. We remind one another of the dangers of falling back into idolatry. Why? Because the true God, the only true God, can only be worshipped exclusively. No other kind of worship will do. And what's amazing in this miracle is that God shows that the worship of Him has to be exclusive. This exclusive worship of God was proven, was proven not by the deliverance from fire. The exclusive worship of God was proven not by the deliverance from fire, but by their readiness to be thrown in the fire. This is a big difference. The exclusive worship of God was proven by these men, even if God chose not to rescue them from fire. That's why, dear friends, we must be careful not to take Daniel chapter 3 as a blueprint of how God rescues, or the fact that God has to rescue this way every time. The faith we're called to have in God is the faith that these three Hebrew men had before being thrown into the furnace, before the deliverance. It's easy to believe in God after the deliverance, right? It's easy to worship God exclusively after He has rescued from fire. It's more difficult to worship God exclusively when you're still feeling the heat of the furnace. And there might not be any hope of you getting out of it on human terms. It's more difficult to have an exclusive worship of God before the furnace. People may say even today, if I can't see God's deliverance out of this mess, I'm having a hard time trusting Him. Why would I worship Him exclusively? if he can't do this for me. Have you heard those phrases? If God would fix my marriage, then I'll follow. If God would give me health, then I would follow him exclusively. If God would provide for my needs, get me out of this mess, then I'll be right with God. Friends, stop Worshipping your desired outcome. Let us stop worshipping our desired outcomes. Look to God and believe that His Word is true. He deserves our exclusive worship. Believe that what He says about Himself is true. Look at the King's praise of God. God's people are those who trust in Him and are willing to give up even their lives rather than worship other gods, or rather than worship desired outcomes. This is the kind of worship God desires. This is the kind of faith that is saving faith. Christians today live with compromise in their lives, and they're afraid of getting rid of their compromise because they're afraid for their life. What would happen to them? Trusting God. 
believe that he is able to deliver, but also believe that even if he chooses not to deliver, deliver, your exclusive worship of God is more important than the preservation of your life. The good news of the gospel is foreshadowed by the story of Daniel chapter 3. The picture of a fiery furnace appeared for the first time in Deuteronomy chapter 4 when Moses referred to Egypt as the iron-smelting furnace and reminded them how the Israelites, how God brought out the Israelites from that furnace. Later in Isaiah, God promised to deliver his people from the Babylonian slavery, which was a furnace of adversity in Isaiah chapter 48. And while Israel was in exile, God sent his angel to deliver these three Hebrew men from the fiery furnace to be a reminder, a physical reminder, that he can do for his people what he has done for these three Hebrew men. But all of this points to the New Testament, when God, in the fullness of time, sent his only son, Jesus, to save his people from the furnace of hell. Matthew 13, Jesus said of the end times that the Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and evil doors and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Friends, the story of the God who saves from fire is really the story of the gospel. Daniel chapter 3 is just a foreshadow. It's pointing to that great rescue that God will do through Jesus Christ. We all deserve the fire because we all have rebelled against God, yet he sent his son Jesus to die in our place as a substitute so that we might be delivered from the wrath to come. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 14. Having heard Daniel 3, listen to the words of Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 to 12. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark on his na- of his name. This calls for patience and endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Do you see echoes of Daniel 3 in this passage? Friends, God has come to rescue us from fire by sending us his son, Jesus. Because there is another fire that will come 
an eternal fire. And that fire will go on with ev- without ever stopping. There is going to be no rest. And friends, to wait until that day comes and to think about your decision until that day is foolishness. This is the day of salvation. This is the day when the news of the gospel must be received. This is a day that when those who trust in Christ, those who turn to Christ in repentance and faith, can be rescued from the fire to come. Friends, the gospel of Jesus, you've heard it already in the service. You've heard it in the prayers. You've heard it in the singing. It is only through Christ alone that we can be rescued from this fire because He has satisfied the wrath of God in our place. Do you know this salvation? Do you know this rescue? Has God delivered you from the wrath to come? Oh, friends, if you don't know this salvation, if you don't know this gospel, or perhaps you have heard it, but you've never responded to it, today is a day when you can do so. I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Don't leave from this place without having the assurance that God alone has rescued us from this fire. And for those of us who have responded to this gospel, for those of us who have been convinced of God's rescue and experience in our lives, let us continue to worship this God who deserves our exclusive worship. Let us continue to worship this God in faith, believing in His ability to rescue, believing in His freedom to do whatever He wants, believing more in His words than in the outcomes, looking at His commands, looking at His His word that is true, regardless of these circumstances. Friends, no other God saves in this way. No other God saves by sending His Son for us. Therefore, no other God deserves our exclusive worship. Let us pray. Our great God and King, You who have prepared the way for the gospel, even in the Old Testament, even in the story of Daniel, and his friends. Oh Lord, oh God Almighty, we pray that you would make this gospel here be heard in our ears. Do its work in our midst. May we come to you. May we repent of our desires to play with other gods, to be on the fence about our exclusive worship. May we repent and turn to you. And no matter what happens in our lives, to be willing to worship you alone, to turn to you in faith and repentance because you alone are the God who rescues and deserves our worship. We praise you, O God, in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with us and sing this last song as we uh, go out.